Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Southeastern faith family. Uh, let's study God's word together. Nehemiah chapter 8 in your Bible. Let me ask you to open it uh, to that place. I hope you brought your Bible with you today and for some reason you didn't. I know there's somebody sitting close to you. I want you to help me to preach uh, this morning and uh, study God's word by looking at it as well as hearing it. Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me read God's word over you, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah is the assumed author, but we know that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that makes this God's word for us. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Shariba, Jamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribes, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I know that Nehemiah 8 is burned over territory for many of you. 
It's a familiar passage of scripture. I know in my own life and ministry, it's one that I find myself coming back to time and time again. So let, let me tell you how I got here for this day. Really started with our president, Dr. Aiken's convocation message. Those of you that heard that, remember that he challenged us in that message this year to, to elevate our love for truth, for, for God's truth. Even outlined six particular convictions and doctrines that he wanted us to have on our radar and to underscore the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture and uh, the exclusivity of the gospel and penal substitution was on that list, complementarian theology, uh, the importance of the local church and the inerrant and eternal value of human life. He talked about all of those, and in that message, he challenged us to give attention as a community of faith this year to, to, to just raising the bar of our love for God's truth. I'm indebted also to Dr. Scott Pace. For a few weeks after that, he challenged our Bible exposition faculty in an annual meeting that we have um, to, to think back on that challenge that Dr. Aiken had given us. And, and for us to think about as a uh, preaching and teaching faculty how we, we would take part in that. How would we help foster that in the lives of our seminary family, our students, our, our staff, our faculty? And so as I, as I was praying about that, I, I gravitated toward this passage of Scripture that is a, is a picture, it is an account of a community of faith that just seemed, at least on this day, and let me just say, Israel didn't get it right every, all the time in the Old Testament, most of the time, but I think on this day, they got it right. A picture on this day of a people who seemed to love and long for the truth of God's Word. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning to, you know, to, to make the connection that I'm, I'm just going to assume today, and that is that... There is a connection between this use of the Old Testament law in this passage and the 66 books that, that we hold in our hands today. I, I think there is a clear road from one to the other that puts us on, on a firm foundation that we can make application of what's going on here to our day and time. And that application that I want to make is, is actually very narrow. It's very, it's very simple it's very focused, and it's one that might surprise you a little bit. I want us to think about how we as a community of faith, and we are not the church. Let's be very clear about that. We're not trying to be the church, but in this common journey that we're on, in this seminary context, in this college at Southeastern context, in this sort of, we are an expression of the community of faith. And I want us to think about how we together engage God's truth. Because there's a, there's a picture here of a people who seem, at least on this day, to have a very, very high view of that truth. And I want, us to, I want us to evaluate that beginning, and this is the really narrow part, listen to me, beginning with how we engage it in this context that we call chapel. A couple of days a week, 
we gather together. I don't know if anybody's ever preached on how you do chapel before, but that, that's, really, that's really what I want us to think about. And, and, and I want to tell you why. One reason I think it's important for us to think about that is this really is the only chance, these two times, Tuesday and Thursday, the only chance we have to, to uh, engage the truth of God all together where it's available to everybody, and it's a, y'all come, let's gather together, and let's do this. This is really the only context in which we do that all together. Let me tell you something else that's important about it. Let's be honest. All of us are inspired and helped and challenged sometimes to take our cue and what we do out there in our churches from what we do here in the chapel. And so I think this is important. It's important for us to think about how we engage God's truth through His Word when we gather together in contexts like this. And then my prayer is that God would help us to take that and then apply it. Apply it in the churches that we lead and the people that we, we shepherd. So let me just start by bursting some bubbles this morning. I, I don't think the book of Nehemiah is in the Bible primarily to teach us about leadership. I think the book of Nehemiah is in the Bible to help us to see how God restored and preserved his community of faith. In order that one day, he would bring salvation through that people for his people and for all people. That makes this huge on what's going on. And right here on, uh, with this gathering in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is comprised of now three waves of exiles that are returning from Babylon back into the promised land, we're given of a, a picture of a people who, who believed, at least on this day, that God's truth through the scriptures was absolutely essential for their well-being as a community of faith. And that's what I want us to get today. I want us to understand that about Southeastern Seminary. I want us to understand about this expression, and that, that is biblical truth is crucial. It is absolutely essential for us, listen to me, to hear God, to worship Him, and to fulfill his mission. Let me say it again. Biblical truth is absolutely essential for us as a community of faith, for us to hear God, to worship him, and to fulfill his mission. So let me show you seven convictions. And obviously, you look at that number, you know we're going to have to move through this pretty fast. Seven convictions that I know we hold together. But I simply want to repeat, reiterate, call your attention you know, in, in this passage of Scripture and say to you, these are convictions we must continue to hold if those things are going to be accomplished, if we're going to hear Him, if we're going to worship Him, and if we're going to fulfill His mission. All right, so let's start. Here's the first one. The Word builds our community. It builds our community. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. I don't even know what that looks like. This crowd gathers together as one man. But what I do know is that the word people is used 13 times in these verses that I read just a moment ago. Nine of those times it's used in, in, in the phrase all the people. 
There's a lot going on here, but the feature on this day wasn't the temple. The priests weren't driving this thing. There were some pretty heavy hitters by way of speakers on the platform that day. You got Ezra and Nehemiah, but, but, but they didn't seem to be the focus. The focus seemed to be the unity of the people coming together. All the people gathered together as one man. It's a reflection, it seems. I, I think about, just listen to it, of what Paul says about the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 when he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling moves on down and says that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then listen to what he says. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's appealing to the convictions, the theological convictions, the doctrines that were crucial for the Christian faith. And he's calling the people to unity based upon those things. Then he talks about diversity in spiritual gifts, diversity in office gifts that are given to the church, but then shows how God uses those for the building up of the community of faith, the body of Christ. And goes on to speak of that and describes it as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then talks about so that we no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we'd grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Unity, togetherness, one body. Again, we're not trying to be the church here, but we are an expression of the church and servants of the church, and we are a community of faith. And listen to me, come in here real close, that will not be together, will not be together for any other reason than this book right here and the truth that it communicates. God's Word builds our community. Look at a second one. God's Word enables our hearing. It enables our hearing. Now, be careful here. Not talking about our, our physical hearing. We got microphones and, you know, and acoustical things that are going on and great teams to help us with all of those things. It's not the kind of hearing I'm talking about. I'm talking about the hearing of the voice of God. This is what God's Word enables us to do. Notice these people there in verse 1. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. Can I just press pause right there and just, let me just encourage you. Pray God gives you a congregation that does that. That they demand this of you as a preacher. That you're a small group that demands this of you as a teacher. This is something that you ought to come into this place expecting from the, the men that stand on this platform. This ought to be the cry of our heart. Bring us the book. Why? Why did they want the book? Well, you know, there's a pretty good doctrine of inspiration that's reflected in their request in this passage of Scripture. You know, notice there in verse 1. It says, they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You know, they knew the law had a human author, and they greatly respected him. 
Moses is one of the most revered leaders in all of Israel's history, and they got that. But notice what they were calling for, what they were interested in. They knew that Moses had physically penned it. He was the human author, but they knew God was the one that had wrote it. And because he's the one that wrote it, because he's the one that inspired it, they knew on that day they had the opportunity to hear the very voice of God. They were coming together, not because they wanted to hear Moses, but they were coming together because they wanted to hear from God. I want to ask you this morning, what do you you think is going to happen when you come into this place? What do you expect to happen what are you anticipating will be the case he's looking for wonderful time of musical praise and focus on missions and 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 we 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 value all of those things but let me ask you are are you looking for a sermon looking for someone who's prepared a lesson is going to get up and 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 give that lesson this is the way a lot of our people come to the worship services as we lead uh, that we lead the the enlightenment has influenced us more than we want to admit as if this were some kind of routine academic exercise let, let me just ask you what would it change about what you do when you come into a place like this and what you do when you come to a time like this if you really believe that God was going to talk. I wonder how it would affect the conversations out there among students, faculty, staff. Imagine somebody say, hey, God's on campus today and he's going to talk in chapel. You see, if we really believe that, if we believe that's what happens here, then it it probably would change our motivation for some of us, and it would change how we prepare for it. It would change our expectations that we, that we bring into this place. The thing that I want you to see is there's got to be a, there has to be a relationship between our doctrine, doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration and the sufficiency of Scripture and what we think happens when it is preached and it's taught. It's got to be a relationship with those things. I think, I think there was something otherworldly that was going on every time Jesus preached and taught. I mean, think about Mark chapter 1. He gets up in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he, you know, he, he expounds on the Scripture, basically gets to do what none of us ever get to do, and that is sit down and say, hey, this is talking about me. But do you remember the people's response? They were blown away. Why? Because they sensed They sensed a weightiness that they weren't used to hearing, weren't used to sensing. There was something going on in the moment. And they said, they said, this guy, this guy teaches with an authority that we're not used to feeling and hearing and sensing. He's not from around here. I think that's what we want, isn't it? When we preach and teach God's word. People to sense that. We want them to sense what those disciples on the road to Emmaus sense when Jesus expounded them from all the scriptures, the thir- things concerning himself. They went on to one of their houses, and after they had eaten, they, he disappeared out of their midst. Do you remember their commentary? Remember what they said? Did you hear that expository sermon he gave? I mean, his, his outline was incredible. Do you remember the illustration that he gave? No. 
They, they didn't know how to articulate it. They didn't know how to analyze it, maybe even like, like we do in a seminary classroom. But what they said was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scripture? Listen, come in here real close. They were hearing an otherworldly voice. They were hearing a voice. They were sensing something that was coming from somewhere other than that human body that was standing before them. And beloved, listen, I... I believe that God keeps doing that. He continues to do it. I, I'll be honest with you. tell you, I'm, I'm greatly challenged by some guys I don't even agree with with regard to the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy, but who seemingly had an incredibly high view of what happened during the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Carl Barth, for example, he didn't believe the Word of God was the Word of God until it was preached. And then it became the Word of God. I, I totally reject that foundational belief about the nature of the Word, but I have great respect for what he thought happened in the preaching moment. There was something otherworldly. D.F. Torrance actually was influenced by Bart, also not an inerrantist. He, he, he believed, and I think he was right, he believed that God continued to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the Word. So let me ask you, what, what do you think happens? What are you asking God for? What are you anticipating when you come into this place? Listen, brothers and sisters, there needs to be a relationship between our convictions about inspiration, our convictions about inerrancy, and what we think happens when the Word of God is rightly preached and rightly taught. It enables our hearing. We get to hear the voice of God. When we do this together. Now, if that's true, then number three is true, and that is it requires our understanding. It makes sense, right? If God, if God is going to speak when we do this, if He's really gonna, if He's really gonna speak, then it really follows that it's important that we understand what He says, right? Did you notice that emphasis in this passage? There's some form of the word understand used five times in these first 12 verses. You see it once in verse 2. It's mentioned right there, all who could understand. Another time in verse 3, the men and the women and those who could understand. It's going to be mentioned again in verse 7 when these Levites helped the people to understand. Again in verse 8, so that the people understood the reading. And then number 5, the last in verse 12, the last part, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Why is that essential? Why is it important for people to understand? Because you understand, you, you understand, no pun intended here, that, that everything that flows out of the, the preaching and teaching of God's Word has to start at that place right there. We don't just do application in our sermons and our Bible lessons. We do application of something it's not just, oh, let's have some practical things for us to go home and do. We are applying something. Same thing is true with illustration. You don't just do illustration. You illustrate something. And what we illustrate and what we apply is the truth of God's Word rightly understood. You know what that means? Somebody's got to explain it. Somebody's got to help us to understand what God is saying. Bill Hull said this. He said that life transformation begins with the commitment of the mind. 
Sometimes we've got these mystical ideas going on that we think somehow, you know, God's truth is just going to bypass our minds and just jump into our hearts as if there was something about this physical organ that, you know, was going to be transformed. No, you know this. It's, you know, it gets to our heart as it passes through the understanding of our mind. And I want you to notice, notice all the things in this passage of Scripture that they did to contribute to people's understanding. Well, number one, they didn't get in a hurry, obviously, right? Verse 3 says he read from it from early morning until midday. Now, just hold on. I'm, this is not going to be a sermon about long sermons, all right? But I, but I just want to say to you, you know, that this is not about getting through a sermon, it's, an, it's not about just making a presentation. It is about doing whatever it takes to help people understand. Help them to understand God. And you can't always get in a hurry with that. Now, I know we, we do have time parameters. We got them here in chapel. There's other things that we're trying to accomplish in the course of a day. You're going to have them and do have them in your local church in small groups and, and the message, especially here in the Western church, and those are realities. But here's my appeal to you. Don't get in a hurry with God's Word. Do whatever you need to do. If it means doing the, the message in a couple of parts, if it need, means not being locked into your rigid message planning series that you've mapped out for a year, this is the non-negotiable. Not getting through a sermon, not getting through a series. The non-negotiable is people understanding. I don't know who was keeping the nursery on that day, but I know they, they, they didn't get in a hurry with the teaching of God's Word. They also gave attention to some logistics, obviously. Notice in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for that purpose. So they, they, they did stuff like, you know, most of our facilities are are constructed according to this. Why? Because they wanted people to get it. They wanted people to understand. They weren't trying to put on a show. This was not about a performance. It, it wasn't about eye candy. It, it, it wasn't about just, just creating the, the best feeling atmosphere they could. They wanted people to understand. I think another thing they did was they prepared and that's implicit in the text, but I think it's reflected in this list of guys whose names we can't pronounce. You look at that and you say, what those guys do? I mean, they're flanking Ezra on his right and his left. What were they there for? Well, I, I don't know that we know all the reasons, but I'll tell you one of the reasons I think they were there is because I think they had done a lot of work offline. They had been in the rooms with Ezra translating the text of Scripture, interpreting it, figuring it out, working together. It reflected, it reflected some preparation before, before you got to the day, before you got to the gig, before you got to this time where he got, Ezra got up in, in public. We have access to that, don't we? Many of you know how to choose good commentaries written by guys whose names you can't pronounce, people who've studied a particular book of the Bible all their life, people smarter than all of us. And we, we invite them, linguists, translators. We invite them into our study. We ask them to help us. We prepare. Why? Because understanding God's Word is important. Not just that, but sight. And notice in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people because he was above all the people. 
So why does the Spirit call our attention? You know, why does He call our attention to, to that reality? Well, certainly there's a relationship between sight and hearing. You know, when we're able to see as well as hear, it, 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 it contributes to our understanding. But in a crowd this size, you know, people, everybody wouldn't be able to see the expressions on His face and the movement of His lips. I, I think there's something else here, and that is they just felt like the visual was important in this deal. It's important for people to see the centrality of this going on. And even if they couldn't see the expression on, on Ezra's face while he was talking, they could, they could see him because of the way things were there. And, and, and beloved, I think this is huge. I don't make too big a deal out of this, but let's don't lose this in Christian worship. We know symbols. We know sight is important, right? I mean, there are things that we use to that are not the real deal, but they remind us the flag of the United States of America isn't the freedoms we have. It, 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 it isn't a, a demonstration of all the men and women who have given their lives, but it reflects that, it symbols it, and therefore we, we pay honor to it, we, we, we respect it. We know that's true with the monikers and the logos that we have that reflect our seminary. Those seminary logos, that's not those values. That's not our mission. But when we look at them, we think about our mission. Some of you have college football swag on. That's not your team that won your division last year, the, the, you know, won the playoffs. That, but that logo reflects that and helps you. The, 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 this was obviously important for our Lord, wasn't it? He gave us Lord's Supper and baptism that are not the realities of those things, but they're signals of it. Just something for you to think about. Why, why would we punt, if that's true, on the most significant physical symbol we have of the truth of God by relegating our consideration of it either to not ever opening it or just to the convenience of the electronic devices we have. I want to encourage you. I, I, I do. I want to encourage you. Shepherd your people. Shepherd your people with the use of the physical book because of what it represents, not because it's any less the truth of God's Word on our iPads, our iPhones. But listen, no little child ever walks into a foyer of a church and sees a man carrying an iPad and makes the connection. That guy loves the Word. But they will make that connection. They will make that connection with a physical book. I just, I just think sight was important. I think it's important for us to think about that. Let me encourage you and challenge you. Bring your Bible. Bring your Bible to where the Word is preached and taught. Open it up as long as we live in a country where we have the freedom to own these things and bring them. Do that. Do that for greater understanding and do it to help shepherd other people to greater understanding. Please hear my heart on this. Not hating on you. I use electronic stuff all the time in my personal worship time, and I'm so grateful for the convenience. But let's think about pastoring our people, shepherding our people when we preach and teach God's word, and think about what we want them to come to with regard to a, a greater understanding and a greater value on the truth of God's word that's represented in this book. So many other things. I think size of groups. They, you know, in verse 7, these Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Apparently, they broke up in small groups, did some Q&A. 
When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how cool is that for us as a faith community? We got, we got a, a, semin- a campus full of preachers and teachers of God's word and counselors of God's word, people that, that live in God's word. What an incredible opportunity to have discussions about what we heard God say in the message in chapel, to ask one another questions about it. Let me encourage you. Let me challenge you. Engage one another with the truth of God's word that you hear in context like this, and then, and then help one another bring greater understanding to it and greater clarity to it. All of this is summarized, I think, in verse 8, with probably what you know, I, I would just like to call exposition. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Language of the Old Testament, it, it means with interpretation, uh, distinctly, or paragraph by paragraph even. Apparently what they were doing is breaking it down in mag- manageable segments. And it says they gave the sense, they gave its translation from the Aramaic, the diplomatic language they would have learned to speak in, in exile, uh, you know, uh, tr- translated from the Hebrew into that. So people, what? Verse, verse 8 says, so that the people understood the reading. This is, why our, this is why our president expects the men on this platform to do exposition. It's not because we love it as a, as a preferred sermon form. It's because we know it's the process that is needed to peel back the layers and expose the voice of God to people. And this is what they were doing. It requires our understanding. Number four, it inspires our worship. It inspires our worship. I'm just I'm blown away by the response of the people to the teaching of the Word in this context. And Ezra opened it in verse 5, all the people stood. It says they answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You know what's interesting is most of those, most of those responses are things that we normally limit to either prayer or musical worship, right? But yet none of that stuff is going on here. What's going on is is the exposition of God's word so that God's verse voice is heard. And, and isn't it natural, if God's speaking, that people would worship him? And I want to remind you about that. God has revealed himself, continues to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ through this word right here. And, and in doing that, he, he prompts, he inspires, he beckons us to worship him. We need to be holistic in this. Pastors, those of you that preach, don't spend the musical worship portion of the service flipping through your notes and reviewing your sermon. Engage God that deserves our worship in the musical portion of this. And I want to say to you that are musical worship leaders as well, don't call yourself a musical worship leader if you don't bring your Bible or you bring it and you don't open it and you don't engage the Word of God when you lead people or when it's not your time to be on the platform. What greater expression of worship is there than God speaks and we respond? This is worship we're doing. This is worship that we're doing together. Number next, whatever it is, five... Don't miss this. It reveals our gospel. It reveals our gospel. Yeah, it does. Three times in verses 9, 10, and 11, these leaders say two things to the people. This day is holy to the Lord. Quit your crying. Why are they doing that? Well, number one, they're doing it because that's what the people were doing. 
Verse 9, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why were they doing that? Because it wrecked them. It wrecked them. It messed them up. Why? Because they, they, they understood they were responsible for the exile. Their sin put them there. God's word was convicting them. And that's how why they respond. But why were these guys saying, you know, listen, stop crying because this day is holy to the Lord. Well, because, because they knew that God's conviction was intended to just clear the way for some really good news. You know what day it was, right? Back at the end of verse 2, the first day of the seventh month, Old Testament law tells us this is the Feast of Trumpets. It was the beginning of a celebration time. It, it, it actually looked forward to something that would happen on the 15th day of the month, and that starts in verse 13. We're not studying that in the Feast of Booths when the people lived in tents for a week and celebrated God's bountiful provision. But yet there was something that happened in between those two. You know what it was? It was the Day of Atonement. Tenth day of the month. Ten days after this day was the day that they would make the sacrifices, which included the scapegoat, by the way, in which the, the, the priest would lay his hands on a goat and representing the transference of the people's sin onto that goat and then release it into the wilderness. So this day is looking forward to that. And these leaders come and say, yes, yes, we need to look at our sin, but You've seen your sin now. Stop. Stop crying. Look at what God's doing. Look at what He's done. And you know we see an incredible picture here of exactly what God's done for us in Jesus Christ when He took your sin and mine and He placed it on Him and made Him the scapegoat for our sin. Curd God's wrath on our behalf on the cross that we might be made right with him, forgiven of our sins, have his life put back inside of us, experience the, the hope that only he can get. They were anticipating the picture of that. You and I live on this side of it. We know the story. But here, here's the deal, beloved. I want you to understand. We won't keep that at the forefront of our thinking without this book right here. That won't remain on our hearts our hearts beating according to that outside the worship of the Lord through this word right here. It, it reveals our gospel. And number six, it fuels our mission. This is almost a no-brainer, isn't it? And verse 10 says, they said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, celebrate, throw a party, don't grieve, but notice this, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. You know, they knew that there were people, whether it be because of their socioeconomic status or just unpreparedness, that didn't have access to what, what it took to prepare the, the festival meals. And so, so the leaders said to the people, those of you that have it, make sure that, that they get it. Make sure people that don't have access, they don't have access to the stuff, make sure that they get it. I know you know that. This is the mission we're on. Just hear me at this point right here. This mission will not, it will not burn hot in our hearts outside of our continual encounter with the truth of God's Word. And then finally, it demands our obedience. It demands our obedience. Verse 12, all the people went their way, and they did exactly what the leaders told them. Eat and drink, 
Send portions, make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This book about this gospel continues to call us to the holiness that only he can give us. As a people of faith, as a community of faith, as we engage this word, it is going to call, it's going to convict us, which we need, and it's going to show us Jesus, and it's going to remind us about the power that he's given us to align ourselves with his character and his conduct. This book demands our obedience. Beloved, listen to me. The physical book is not the point here. But if the physical book and our navigation of it will help us with the truth that it contains, and we know these things are crucial for our lives as a community of faith, then let's do both. Let's pray together. Lord, help us with this. Give us grace, and Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would make us a people of the book, but even more so, Lord, a people of the God of the book. When we come in here, Lord, meet us here, speak to us, we pray. Give us grace as we respond and we worship you and we fulfill your mission. We obey you and help us, Lord, to then Take what we see sometimes here and what we hear and, and shepherd our churches accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.